0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station.
1: Hello, and with me, Kamraslan, today we have the returns of, she, well, she used to be a producer at uh, BFM, but she went off and did other things, uh, which she's doing now. She is Julian Yap.
0: Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me back.
1: How do I describe what you're doing now, Julian?
0: Um, I am a content strategist for an education app platform. Oh, well. So, yeah.
1: Okay, cool. And uh, he is a documentary filmmaker. He's done uh, The Road to Medica? Well No, Road to Independence. Nationhood. Road, Nationhood. He, Road to Nationhood. Let me start again. <laughs> the Road <laughs> to Nationhood, epic series, and, and many other documentaries, which will definitely be uh, useful to know. So our three topics this week are, topic number one is Trough TV. I had to Google that, but we'll find out more in a moment. Topic number two is, The ethics involved in making documentaries. And finally, topic number three is speaking with accents. Does it help or hinder your comprehension? So uh Julian, trough TV. What's that? Uh
0: trough TV or the other, you know, the other end of it, peak TV, um, is a term that I think was I think there's one article on it, and it came out. This week, and when I saw it, I immediately thought that that's the word, that's the term that I've been looking for, and I think that kind of cleared up a lot of things for me. So um, I don't know about you, but I don't know about you guys. I want to get your thoughts on it, but um, for me personally, I've never. um, I'm going to preface that preface this with saying I'm not a big TV person. I'm a big I'm big on bigger on film than I am with TV. Um, but I've always, you know, it's, it, you always know what people are talking about and you know what the big hitters are. But you, even if you're not watching them, you know what's um, around. And also because last time, you know, a lot of the, we were watching them on Astro, everything was on TV. Um, but then with how streaming is and how many streaming services they are, even if they aren't in um, Malaysia and we don't have access to them, it's so, at least for me personally, I found it, I found it so difficult over the last few years to just kind of keep up with how many shows there are. Not that I want to watch them, but because of the sheer volume and they all seem to be similar in premise, similar kind of A-list-ish, B-list cast. They have an interesting enough premise that, oh, I'm gonna to get to that one day and you write it down and you never ever do. Then when you finally get around to it, they it was canceled after one or two seasons and it's really hard to find, except for fun, exciting sources which you shouldn't get them from. Um, and this is excluding the the ones that stand out. So um HBO's, you know, su- Succession, they've got the spin-off of Game of Thrones, The Last of Us is doing really well right now. So it's every kind of streaming service, they have like their big hitters, but under all that, they've got this like little trough. And I, I love the term the trough of it, because um that's kind of where it's all falling into now, because there's so many series just in production that it feels that it's really hard as a casual um, consumer to just kind of pick them, pick something out that's good. And I remember a few years ago, I was thinking um, in the age of prestige TV, and that was you know House of Cards, Game of Thrones, The Walking Dead at the start of you know Walking Dead, um, Sopranos, you know stuff like that. It was Mad Men. It was like prestige TV. And I remember thinking, how much longer is prestige TV going to last? And the actual, in this article that I found, which is on Slate, I um, would recommend anyone who's interested to read it. It's called Peak TV is Over, Welcome to Trough TV. Um, in the article itself, it actually says that the guy who ter- who coined the term Peak TV, who is the chair of FX, John Landgraf, he's the one who coined it. He's also coined the term Trough TV. So he's saying that, peak tv wasn't you know the best tv but it is the start of the decline and mm. it means that that's where we are now and it's not also not very surprising it also it feels very overwhelming a lot of the time trying to try to find try to find something nice to watch something that's new something that you want to invest yourself completely and wholly into um because a lot of the time it feels like you know Streaming services want to throw lots of money at a lot of different projects because they want to show that they've got the biggest, li- the biggest yeah. library. I, yeah.
1: I, I I agree with you entirely. It's really hard to find anything decent. And uh, Yazid, you're you're actually in the game of making TV, uh, mm-hmm. a bit you know not dramas but documentary. Um, are, are you finding the landscape has uh, changed in the last few years? Absolutely. I think it's it's way more challenging right now
2: to actually. Um, produce a show that you want uh but when it comes to this throb tv again could you explain a little bit more what does it mean because i haven't googled it but mm. i think it can sit to me a little bit
1: about it what what is it what is throb tv but, but, you know, i was going to mansplain there but you know you go ahead julie well i was going to suggest I, I suggest to you julie it's basically just Trough is is now the dip down. So now we're in the rubbish. We're in the dregs. This is okay. bad TV. Is that right? Okay.
0: Yeah. And there's just so so much of it, and it's like it okay. feels like it's just so deep. This trough. Mm.
2: Mm. Mm. I think this is a programming thing from the channel, and I work with them all the time. Right? They know that there will be some, you know, out of like this amount of money that they have to invest, that uh, they have to to invest every year, they would need to actually allocate something that would just make people continue subscribing to it. And the rest will suffer. And in my case, I suffer because a documentary does not get uh, a lot of uh, attention compared to this, you know, fiction, uh, fantasy world that uh, people create, uh, or creators or creatives, creators create. So, um, yeah, so it's, it is, has been challenging, uh, especially in my uh, industry, which is, uh, factual nonfiction filmmaking. Um, and, but however, I think it's needed because subscribers need the noise to continue on the platform that they pay the perception of i pay this much but i only get one or two programs uh, is very very um prevalent like uh, so i don't want to pay sorry i don't want to pay this much but only get one or two programs i want to pay this much and the the volume that i get is a lot although there's a lot of them are uh, quite rubbish but nevertheless i think it's a value for money kind of a perception that uh, the the channels have to counter with the subscribers or with, with the market so that's why i i guess oh no i guess i think i'm quite into it that you know you 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 get to see this trough tv or what is what you call so you the, call the fact that
1: people are not going to watch 95 percent of it is built into it they you yeah. they just want to just saturate your eyeballs with with the the notion that there's just so much yeah. stuff we're giving you so much stuff yeah yeah. and 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 also um I th- uh, following on from as it said and also something I read so therefore what you're saying as it is they'll they'll uh pump out a lot of new things just to keep you ticking over uh and you don't have to invest emotionally in anything long term because I read mm-hmm. that if if they cancel the show they can then stop paying uh re- repeat fees and residuals to the filmmakers of that show. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's cheaper for them to just create a new series all the time and not go to season two. I yeah, think. I guess. Yeah. yeah, unless the
2: series is really successful. Like, I just started watching Game of Thrones, don't judge me. Uh, but, but-, but that's
1: HBO, though. I think HBO has a <laughs> yeah. different model because it's not streaming oh, they- per
2: se. It is, yeah. HBO Go is streaming. So they do have this, you know, not so great series. But they do invest a lot, as you can see in the Last of Us series right now. It's quite a premium one, and that what may make people stay, right? Stay and watch. And I think, uh, from HBO go, I only watch these two series right now, and I didn't go and watch their other stuff. Mm. Yeah, and a lot of them uh, are actually acquisition. Too acquisition is something that's already been made, and they acquire, and these don't have to be necessarily from a different market. Great. Yeah, from yeah. a different market or different from channel. Germany, so okay. again, it just makes the volume uh kind of like okay. a lot so that people feel that they pay the you know, okay. the value that hey, they so, pay.
1: But but Julian, do you do you buy into the notion that there was a peak TV?
0: Oh no, for sure. I think but I I do think that was that time that that was a very clear kind of shift that kind of started with Netflix and House of Cards, where it was House of Cards, Mad Men, uh Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones. And that was I think 20. 2011 2010 maybe where it was we it is Westworld uh, HBO as well like you know uh, streaming services wanted to throw their hat into the ring realizing that wow if we throw so much money into this into this series we could make it you know at the level of you know Lord of the Rings was three-hour epic but what if we could break it down into six seasons and then they started doing that with everything but then we kind of lost in the same way that we've lost like the mid-budget um what's it called? Like the 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 June um sorry the like the August cinema fodder the mid-budget movie we've lost like the mid-budget TV series as well. Yeah I like, and I like those that's my favorite type. <laughs> yeah
1: yeah but but before we move on can I just ask you though uh this this Trough TV you could keep calling it TV it's not really TV though. No it's not it's TV not- as I understand. it's not television.
0: No, because I, I was thinking about what Netflix did last year as well. Where they announced that they were going to release one new film every week, which brought them to fifty-two new films on the platform um, mm. in, that year, in in one year. And because of that, that well, they they put out some real bad ones, you know. Yeah. So the approach of like, let's just throw an algorithm. Let's throw the mm. biggest name. Like, if, who is the top trending? Well, it's Ryan Reynolds. It's Ana de Armas. Let's like throw all of them into a film and let's produce them real quick and fast. And 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 it it doesn't it. The, they've put the the they've used the same model for films and it, it upsets me. I don't. It doesn't feel like But it feels like it's not gonna end soon and it's gonna just get worse, almost. Mm-hmm. But I am just a casual viewer. I don't. Yeah. I don't.
1: Yeah, they Go were ahead. not the
2: first. Actually, big big studio. Uh, well, not big studio, but mid, mid mid uh middle level studio like a Bloomhouse. They used to do that mm-hmm. in the nineties where they they would spend a lot on a lot of money on a lot of films. So, but they would. Try to see which of the genre that would pick up quite well, and apparently they found their genre, which is horror. And as you know, like starting from uh, what uh, the conjuring, yeah. So they start, and then they 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 they're doing so well right now. But they don't have the pressure like a platform that they have to produce a lot. They can just choose right now what they want to do. Sorry, uh, is, that a, and then, is that a
1: production company you're talking yeah, about? Bloom House, yeah, Bloomhouse. Yeah, and then over
2: company. here, over here also there was some some a studio that actually did that before Metro. Well. Yeah, they were trying to throw in into all the genres and see which one worked. Mm. Uh, they may have sacrificed the quality, but they somehow got it right. And then um, I don't know what they're doing. now.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, we'll keep an eye on that. And uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought this one up, uh, brought this to our attention because I've been feeling as I flick through, it's like, all of this is rubbish.
0: Yeah, and nothing. Yeah. You don't want to click on
1: any of nah, yeah. Yeah, it. I'm,
0: yeah. I'm also glad that I'm not the only one. Or I thought I was just being like a snob or something. Yeah, no, like, no.
1: Uh, not at
2: you, all.
1: Yeah, and if you are a snob, yay. So um, <laughs> we move on. Topic number two, which is the ethics of documentaries, because um, I've been watching this uh, Korean documentary about these uh, religious sects. Uh, just came out on netflix it's called in the name of god uh holy betrayal and it, it's well made it's well made it's good but it, it because it's made from a different uh cultural background different cultural sensibility style than the ones i'm used to which would be uh, british and american documentaries things do mm. kind of s- stick out and then and it makes me it, they made me question the ethics behind documentary making because i've i've made documentaries and i found them to be impossibly hard it just it, it I, as a human being as a i just couldn't do it uh, yazid obviously can so for instance in the in this uh documentary about religious sects there's a scene where there's this is one woman who's been just horrifically abused by mm-hmm. this uh sect leader in korea and she's come forward to uh denounce Uh, to to the police etc this and so they've met up with her and then she's sort of recounting she how she used to pray to this guy there are tears in her eyes she's it's as if she is praying as she was back then she's now changed she now hates the sect but the words that she's using and the tears in her eyes etc and i'm thinking well this this is kind of crossing a line ethically, isn't it? What were the conversations involved around that scene where the producer was going, well, why don't you kind of like, you know, relive the past, the horrors of the past, and kind of like, uh, you know, pray to this guy like you used to. And and I thought, that's not quite right. Um, But then there are also other things where, which small technical details, which I'm sure you guys would know, one thing I respected about this documentary is that when people are being interviewed and they, they start getting emotional, one thing they do not do is they do not zoom in. I hate this about American documentaries in particular. Anyone starts to get a little bit emotional, but teary, the cameraman, I don't think even needs to be told by the director, they start zooming in on the face and then the guy would go, I'm, I'm really sorry, can you just give me a minute? and And we're like, hold it for a moment, tears in their eyes, cut. I hate that so much. It's so emotionally manipulative. But this documentary does do. It's a documentary, mind you. They're supposed to be dealing with the truth. It's got so much music in it. Mm. Thinkly piano music, which induces emotion in the viewer. And I mean, I, I was kind of raised with the documentary ethics where the subject inside the frame is giving information or emotion and that's where the truth lies you do not augment the truth with piano music for instance um but on the whole there's very well-made documentary but just because it was coming from a different sensibility it made me wonder about the ethics of documentaries so i'll jump straight to you yazid defend your profession uh, uh, you're a bunch of live okay. scumbags.
2: <laughs> I, I, I want to go back to your your comment on like you saying that uh, you know we did the produce. You know, uh, w- was there a ethic uh, boundary that was crossed when the producer asked the subject to recollect you know her past and then relive it on camera? Is that what you meant by? Yeah, like, I'm that, wondering. I'm wondering that right. might be unethic? Is that what? Yeah, you yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, so it's interesting because I don't think there is anything wrong with that because I I did it a lot. From all my interviews, I think there's about eight or nine people cry in front of me as I interviewed with them before. Mm-hmm. Um And then one of them would be uh, one of the crime case, big, huge profile crime cases that happened back in 2003 and one of the victim's uh best friend actually cried in front of us. Actually, a few of us who were behind the camera interviewing her. And then we did not manipulate uh, in any way of her experience that night, when the when when the friend was murdered, but we just let her express, uh, you know, this 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 dark uh, memory that she, she she encountered in the past, and then uh, we in a way that and then we also maybe it was also kind of like a um, uh, a catharsis for her to kind of like re or like a, a like just something that she's held for a long sure, time. Yeah. And then she was just uh, bouncing off someone. Maybe she hasn't been able to say that uh, in a in in a safe way, which we provide to mm. to her. Uh, and then, um, uh, so so I think it was quite ethical, and you know, we did not manipulate or any of her statement in any way that she didn't
1: mean in during the interview. Yeah, Same no, as I, I think. What you're describing though is recollecting events. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But what I'm describing though is actually reimmersing yourself in that state of mind which you spent so many years trying to run away from and, oh, and
2: isn't it quite similar to? Like, i, I guess something? it's similar but i think
1: yeah. i i kind of feel a distinction nonetheless uh, okay. uh, okay. uh julian right. i mean julian you 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 have watched i'm sure documentaries do you do you sense ethical boundaries in the documentary
0: I, I think there have been times where I, I can't, I've been, the, the entire time i have been talking, i trying to think of any uh, specific instances, but I can't bring any, none come to mind. But I was I was thinking, there have been times where I'd be watching, you know, uh, a victim or, you know, anyone recounting something, but then it felt, I don't think it, I don't think I personally ever felt that they crossed a line, but you can, you know, like as a viewer where you, you're not comfortable. And I, I always have to ask myself if that was the intention of the filmmaker. Was the, was the point of that to make me feel uncomfortable? And there and the, and therefore you've pushed your, you've pushed your this victim this subject so so far. And I I've never called into question the ethics though. To be fair.
1: Yeah, because you know the documentary filmmaker is working with the truth, and that's very that's a very powerful um, thing. Because you know fiction is fiction It's like oh, this is made up, but but yep. there's a lot of trust involved, isn't there? Yazid, yes,
2: absolutely, yeah. yeah. So it's a, it's interesting because I think I told you that, you know, we just discussed about ethics in documentary recently with my team, my team and I. And we wanted, we, I explained to them, like, how do we, how do we know that the person who's about to be interviewed by us sitting under the, under our spotlight in an interview? How do we know that this person trusts us when it comes to recording their personal story? Because to a lot of people, what happened in the past, Especially when it's actually not so pleasant to remember again. It's a, it's a huge thing to share with a complete stranger. Uh, at least, you know, uh, what maybe we have, we have established connection or uh, communication before, but still we are somehow a stranger to them. How does a person know that to trust this film crew and the producer, director with their story? You know, and then, um, that's, that's a whole new story that if you if, if would you know we wanted to talk about it, it might take time so I'm just coming back to ethics how do we know and I think the most important is actually the filmmaker's intention you know and this is very subjective this is, this actually can be argued right uh, how do we know a filmmaker is, uh, has the best attention for 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 their films uh, or for his or her film you know so it's a it's it's quite it's it's a lot of factors and uh things that we need to we need to think about. And we're not perfect, you know. I'm not perfect. My team's and uh, my team is not perfect, and we're but we're doing our best to protect it. And so far, you know, after doing so many hours of documentaries, we somehow we haven't gotten into like big trouble with any of our. We haven't gotten any legal letter or whatsoever to mm. to say that to bring down any of our documentaries. We interviewed yeah. someone who's very prominent in the Malaysian politics in mm. the Malayan politics back in the '50s, and I asked him to bring back his right wing. Right wing self in the 50s, where he's not anymore. And mm-hmm. we met, we successfully, we managed to do that successfully. And he actually was quite right wing. And he even said, I didn't actually agree with the non Malays getting citizenship in mm-hmm. front of camera, even mm-hmm. though he's now, he has a different uh, view of that. So, yeah. and of course, again, truth, the trust, right?
1: Yeah. And and truth changes over time. So, we must move on. In a moment, we're going to be talking about accents here on A uh, Bit of Culture on BFM 89.9 and we're back with myself Cam uh Ahmad yazid and julian yap and now Ahmad yazid accents and do they change the way that we comprehend things
2: okay i've got to start with something like you know i think over the years uh, you can see in on 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 social media uh on memes about like you know our accent right and then i have this thing on my on my browser right now uh it's called my english so how from uh malaysian manglish and how we translate into english so there are a lot of can here so for example can la is yes can lay is yes of course can law yes i think so can ha are you sure can ho, are you sure then can may are you certain can bo can or not <laughs> so can can confirm uh and then uh my 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 favorite one is can leola, Uh, can leo or already done <laughs> Yeah. So, um, I've always had, have issues with Manglish or any English speaking person who actually use their mother tongue and translate it literally and claim that they're speaking English. The reason is because I grew up not speaking English and I grew up speaking in two languages. One is Malay and, or, and, and, and Mandarin because I went to Chinese school. Uh, so I could only, and then when I was 17, when I left school, uh, I could only speak those two languages and really broken English. So over the years uh, in my adult life, I learned English from friends, reading a lot. So not from school, for sure. So I realized that, you know, I started to, from broken English, I started to actually polish my English to the English that I speak right now. And I I I realized growing up, throughout learning English in my adult life, is that one of the things that affect my English comprehension is if I were to actually use my... Mother tongue, either in uh, Mandarin or no, not Mandarin, but uh, Malay into, I uh, use, use it literally in, in English. Uh, yeah. so for example, like, uh, you know, there was a lot of Malay people who, who do not converse English well, but they try to speak in English right now. They use this term, uh, drop face. Uh, okay. sorry, what, water drop. My face water drop. Okay. That means, I uh, am That means yeah. they, they, they are ashamed of something. Yeah. You know, and then they use that in English, and I find it is very annoying in a way that this is not making them a better English speaker. In fact, this is actually them declaring that they are they are more uh, intercultural. That means they are more uh, well versed in other people's language, but at the comfort of their own bubble, which is Malay language. So this is also prevent them to understand the culture and the nuances. Uh, or the language of other people so yeah, in this presumably case, people would
1: say that phrase if they were confident that they're in an environment where like-minded people would understand comprehend and take part in in yep. that yep. form yep. of language so i mean okay. you know they wouldn't fly off to to new york and be saying that because they would they would know i mean it's like this is this is uh, this is our our but slang if they w-
2: if they were to go to new york then they would just don't know what to say right because they're not they don't practice themselves saying these things so uh so okay again it's will it affect our comprehension i do think it's very much affect our comprehension especially with understanding this is actually i bring up in clubhouse too with uh people speaking uh, for, uh mandarin speakers who speak either in malay or in in english so they uh, mandarin speakers uh the the one that i know throughout my life they you often use their Native language or their mother tongue into the English. For example, like like I said just now, Ken la Like instead of yeah, sure, of course we can do that. Instead of that, like, Ken la is like it's Chinese, right? Like uh, for example, there's another example that is very good. It's just like um, uh, uh okay, I forgot. But <laughs> but yeah. what I'm sa- trying to say is actually it prevents them to actually being able to immerse in that culture, immerse in that language. And uh, for example, there's another thing is like um, uh, wine and dine. Wine okay. and dine. There's no such thing. You cannot actually translate it into Mandarin normally because sure. wine and dine is very much English culture. But they don't say they don't. They won't actually allow themselves to understand and use the term wine and dine if they're so comfort in using a literal translation from your mother tongue to English. So because they will never learn how to say wine and dine.
1: Okay. So okay. wine
2: and dine is very much Western culture. Sure, so, sure. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. But any thoughts? Yeah, Julian,
1: you uh, have you have you come across this situation?
0: Kind of. I, so um, I uh, I very recently started a new job and maybe everyone caught on like the second I walked in the door. But I think um, I found it a little bit difficult to sort of immerse myself into the culture of the workplace because everyone there is uh, more comfortable speaking in the way that Yazid is talking about. Um, but for Chinese or, or Mandarin or even like Hokkien um, and how those words are those words work into um, English speak being spoken, and those are not terms that I understand. And maybe every and anyone who from my workplace is listening now, if this is how they find out that I've not known what they've been talking about this entire time. Oh, you, you just
1: sit there with a smile on your face and go, "Yeah, yes, <laughs> I, I just
0: laugh and ha, ha, maybe the, change the subject, please." And um, I I had to you know ask friends like what what they mean, um, but upon finding out what they mean, sort of little things like guà, something, you know, ending a sentence with guà, making it seem uncertain. That's not something. And upon reading, and I read it so many times in the group chat, did not know what that meant. And even in context didn't know what it meant. but upon asking friends it helped me understand and not that I I, I would never dare. I would I would be way too scared to even try to adopt it myself because I, I don't know if I would ever use it correctly. so but it's helped me understand and probably communicate and work better with people because I know their feelings. Um, yeah things yeah not that I I know that it's a thing that I have to learn that's
1: but I think that what we're, what' we're talking about here is not so much accent as slang. This is yeah. uh Comprehend. slang. So in in your particular workplace, Julian, there's a uh a, as always happens, that in within a group a, a particular culture comes along and and there's a language with that, and people find it funny and they can it's a shorthand. Um mm-hmm. but I doubt that anybody thinks that it's it's uh I mean no one's gonna think that it's classical literature. It I mean, you know, everyone knows it's just a jokey language.
2: Mm, and it, and sure. if someone
1: and if someone did translate directly from mandarin to wine and dine that would be pretty funny. I think there's a gray area there.
2: Uh Kim, <laughs> there's a gray mm-hmm. area there. Yeah, we're talking about like either either if it's a joke or like a colloquial thing that they they do or they really do not want to force themselves to use a proper language. Yeah. Uh, you know, to explain what they're saying and there's a lot of I, I think there's a, a lot of uh, issues with miscommunication here. When sure. if you actually uh, I keep using that and keep using it. Uh, in lightly, you know, and you don't, you don't, you you think that it's okay, like you know how I communicate. And vice versa too. When I speak in Malay, a lot of people say that I I'm too. They call it schema. Schema means like I'm too proper. And I don't think so because they say that. Oh, uh, why do you use Malay words all the time when you speak Malay? I'm like I'm, I'm speaking in Malay <laughs> because a lot of people when speaking Malay right now, a lot of especially Malay speak Malay speaking people they use a lot of English within within their sentences and i I don't like that i want to force myself to really speak in malay if there's no such term and i could not really i cannot really think of something then i might use a bit of a word here or there in english
1: well let me me ask you a question uh yazid you you have i know you've gone off and interviewed a lot of americans american Mm -hmm. soldiers ex-soldiers who were involved in the mogadishu black hawk down thing where malaysian Mm -hmm. soldiers were involved too and so when you were in in, you probably had your own camera crew, or you actually had a temporary camera crew. You may have been the only Malaysian there.
2: Yeah,
1: right. Yeah, correct. So when you're in an environment where it's all native speaking English Americans, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how do you speak? Are you comfortable with the way that you speak? Are you are you being terribly proper? Because Malaysians code switch like crazy. Do you start yeah. with American accent? Hi, y'all. Uh,
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think after uh, every time I, I I surround myself, my surrounding is more of an English speakers, especially native English speakers, and in another country for some reason, maybe it's the cold that affects my my <laughs> my brain or something. So uh, after twenty minutes, I find myself very comfortable speaking with them, and I find myself speak English way more uh, fluently or way better, and suddenly my vocabulary your
1: ends. What's your accent? Uh, my,
2: accent uh well i learned my as i told you i learned my english in my adult life through friends and a lot of them are actually american english speaking friends so i i started to have that so i i, I don't want I, I don't adopt english accent because i don't i didn't learn uh, no. uh my english from english speaking because english speaking people so, so two weeks american in, English. two weeks um, in
1: america and you'd start sounding like john wayne
2: I, I, <laughs> no 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 not at all but there's a more of american term and vocabulary that i'll be using uh more in my in my day-to-day yeah. conversation compared to if i were here uh, uh, yeah.
1: and, and julian are you a code switcher i'm not um, you're not no
0: do, do you think you could be
1: no
2: is no? that what you call uh, no i that's switcher? not
1: that's not enti- um that's not entirely true this is not my accent i've said this many times this is not my accent um i'm not quite sure what my accent is but uh, I am try- I do try to create a completely flat English accent. I know that if, for instance, left to my own devices, in my head, if I say my, I mean, my is a, a small word that is said a lot here. My, Sajatra, my, EG, whatever. Mm. So the my is kind of, it's kind of high up. My, my, kind of tonally wise, my. If I was left to my own devices, I would say my. Oh <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like thinking, more,
0: I've more. talked to you so many times. Yeah. Could I when,
1: not have known? Okay. Yeah. So in my head when I'm talking to myself, you're like, "My, I'm gonna go to my car. <laughs> you know? And it's but I I deliberately try to make it flat because and I don't I think I don't I'll wanna, like you
2: better if you say that more. I
1: don't know, but I don't I don't wanna <laughs> but then again I know people who came back from England, Malaysians, mm. and um Malay as well. Who had a real kind of like London, all right, mate, kind of language, and and then within a short while, I'd be trying to sound very Malaysian, and and to me, it was just like, don't, please don't do that. It's like a, it's like a dog riding a bicycle. It's just it just, just doesn't. It's not right. <laughs> so I don't want to do that. I,
0: I think so. I I'm, I'm glad you brought up code switching because um, especially with I'm um, bringing coming back to this new job that I've, I am I found myself in. Um, and also something that I've gone through my entire life. Um, I grew up in, I, I I studied in international school here in, in KL, and I went to uni in London. So um, I've got a weird mix of accents where depending on who I'm talking to, it mm. kind of changes out. But um, in general, I do, I do the thing where I try to keep it as flat as possible, but more American because it's the easiest way that my mouth moves. But, I've always felt a lot of shame when it comes to code switching. And I've realized that is obviously is a product of a lot of privilege, of course, that I've been able, that I've been able to study where I've been able to study, but um, I've always felt I, I've I never want to mock people. I never want to make anyone feel like, Oh, I've got to change my accent or dumb my accent down or anything, which I hope I've never done, but I never, I, I've always felt a lot of shame in code switching. Um hmm and I, mm, is that something I've had that
2: experience yeah I've heard, I, I I I thought of that about that and oh I I, 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 I don't really think about it right now more than what but I used to think about it a lot like do I have to dumb down my uh, my accent or my vocabulary
1: yeah. uh, you know
2: the vocabulary that I use I have to be like oh my god how do I ex- explain this and then uh you know and and uh, I find myself doing that but I still do that somehow but I do it less and less now you know and uh because even when I speak to a someone who's speaking English, Mang- I would actually use as, as much as possible, use the vocabulary that I'm, I want to use in my com- uh, conversation in English, you know, and then if they're like frowning, then I'll be like, okay, that's what I meant. I, w- I would know, you know, they're frowning means that they may not understand certain terms that I'm, uh, that I'm using. So, um, mm. yeah, coming back to uh, there was, it was actually less of an accent, more of a like the accent affect our uh, comprehension. Uh, when we speak in English. So that's, that I think it's, it's, it, that's an issue that I, I, I have and I still have today. And I'm still kind of like a bit annoyed when someone who's actually using this manglish, uh, when they speak in English because I, not because of the accent. It's really because they're, they don't force themselves to really understand English the way it should be, you know, and, and they, they will lose the comprehension because they're so used to using their mother, uh, mother tongue, which might be a little bit, a lot more simpler way to, to explain something compared to like, if you were to explain in English. Yeah,
1: well, if I, if I can just, I, we must wrap up because we've really gone over, but uh, I would say that um, as somebody who's, who's Malay, I mean, you know, I'm supposedly Malay, but my BM is absolutely appalling. And one of the reasons why is quite simple is because when you try to speak a language that is not your first language and you try to really express yourself and you cannot find the words, it is infantilizing. I mean, here I am now at the age of 56 and I would sound like an absolute child if 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 uh, like a really stupid child if i was trying to express anything and it's humiliating so mm. it's, it's, yeah. it's a way to save your dignity and an, if you're younger i think you can jump in feet first but as the years go by it just becomes harder and harder emotionally
0: yeah. to, it, to try it, to yeah there are there are times where i don't I feel like it's probably better. And when when I, sorry, when I said before dumbed down, I did not mean dumbed down as in, you know, I meant that I cannot speak in, I can never express myself in the way that I properly want to express myself because I don't feel I don't have the proper language and Mm. I'd rather just not speak.
1: Yeah. And also, (laughs) you know, if I was to embark upon learning Portuguese, that'd be fun. That's fun. It means Mm. nothing to me. Portuguese, I have no connection. I mean, I have friends who are, you know, in inverted commas, Portuguese. And it'd be fun. But, when i'm supposed to people keep telling me i you know i am this you are this mm. uh it's an this is your identity and so much is is hanging on it and english is is one of those languages in this country we're not necessarily english but it's mm. it's, it's it's it is a malaysian language yeah. um i then it becomes a little more important and sort of like you know so yeah I, it's not it's not dumbing down it's it makes you dumb yeah (laughs) yeah Uh, so unfortunately i've stolen the last word there sorry guys uh okay we move on so uh we run into uh, the last part of the show where we we do recommendations we recommend something that we think might be of interest and julian go first
0: um i'd like to recommend a series which i felt very good and i'm I, i i enjoyed it very very much it was it's um it's called uh, The Makanai, Cooking for the Ma- Maiko House, which is on Netflix. It is a series of, it's a Japanese, uh, in Japanese language, it is directed by Hirokazu Koreeda, the filmmaker. Um, in this series, um, two teenagers who are best friends, they are from a little small town and they've always wanted, their their dream is to go off together to Kyoto where they can um, learn how to become maikos, which are geishas in training because it's, it, it, you know, tr- traditionally, culturally, it's something that they found important or something that they've always found very beautiful and they wanted to immerse themselves into the, the art of it and the culture. Um, but so that there are two best friends, the one that there's one who is so excited to go and this is her dream and the other one who's tagging along because, yeah, this is what me and my best friend had a pact about. Once they get there, um, the girl whose dream it is realizes that actually she's just clumsy and silly, and maybe she doesn't really enjoy the the, the lesson so much. And maybe what she really really enjoys is trying to find out what vegetables are in season and what are the dishes that what are the little magical things you can put into dishes that can feed the mycos, the dishes in training. And she 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 trains instead of training. To, she she abandons her her Michael training and she becomes the makani of the house um meaning the cook so um and with that comes with you know balance of different types of ingredients you don't want to cook anything too heavy um things have to be cultural but not too not too regional you want to make it you know kyoto kyoto flavor and it's just a very very beautiful series you've got a lot of so young Is this
1: fiction so is this fiction?
0: It is fiction yeah and it fiction. is set in present time so it's also very nice to see you know these kids they have they're not allowed to have their smartphone but they can talk about oh uh, i went to the i went to the the corner shop and i bought i bought you know bought this little thing and they're talking about idols that they enjoy but they're in full like um uh michael gear and the, the training is very interesting to watch the as i think with if anyone's watched any um of korea does work there's a lot of uh, the, the main magic of the show is the relationship between the characters and it's very beautiful i love it Every episode mm. is every episode is focused around a different dish. How could you not love it? I think it's great. I've
1: I've seen it at the corner of my eye on Netflix, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I
0: saw they really
1: it. didn't. Oh, like definitely going to check it that. out. Yeah, it's mm. been a
0: few months, I think, that it's been out. It's very yeah. complicated. Okay, uh, what's it called again? Um the the makinai, cooking for the Michael House.
1: Okay. Uh, no car chases, no bank holdups, nothing. Just it's just. <laughs> cooking for very very
0: slow and beautiful dancing
1: unfortunately okay all right um okay well uh, my recommendation is i think i will recommend this uh the the documentary that i was talking about earlier i I mean i recommend it's not quite the right word because it's really quite horrific the (laughs) subject matter um so you know be be prepared uh child viewing advisory thingy um but it's well made. It's it's a well-made documentary and it's really interesting to see a documentary uh, from Korea uh, Mm. and then to just sort of realize, Hey, this is kind of different. This is different from what I, just a different film language. And uh, it's, uh, it's good. So it's called um, In the Name of God, A Holy Betrayal. And it looks at three, I think, different sects and Mm. Oh God, they're weird. (laughs) Did
0: you watch it in one sitting? Because it popped up on my Netflix and I thought, wow, I could not watch that. That that requires like a month because I think it's eight episodes. And I thought that's eight weeks of watching because I can't watch.
1: hmm. Well, the first three episodes are dedicated to one particular sect. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I've, I've done that one. Um, I have not yet embarked upon the next ones, Uh, but it's, it's it's well made. I mean, I think the Korean aesthetic is. Yeah, I've, this
2: sounds uh, like World War Country. Um, like, well, cool. that
1: you should watch it then because you'll you'll see the differences. Mm. And one of the key differences, Yazid, as you know, is mm. that Americans are very confessional people. Mm. Americans will tell you everything. They'll tell it mm. to you colorfully. They'll be engaging. Mm. They'll tell you a great story. Mm. Asians are not. <laughs> Asians mm. are very private, and mm. it's very hard to to get the. Asians and I imagine Koreans especially mm. to open up and mm. that's one of the interesting things about this Korean documentary is that they have managed to get these, they managed to create an environment whereby mm. Koreans, they find a way to make these Korean voices come through even if it's not live so mm. it, it, it's a mm. difficult thing doing this kind of thing with Asians because they're very private as as you yeah, yeah. 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 so um, in the name of God, a holy betrayal uh, Yazid, what's okay. yours?
2: All right, I, I won't be long. Uh, I wanted to recommend uh, Game of Thrones, but I won't because I, I it's been wild.
1: <laughs> I've never so, seen but, it. I've never seen it. <laughs> oh, okay, good.
2: Someone, finally, someone I know who has never yeah. seen it. Uh, but I'm going to recommend the Malaysian film right now is on cinema called Imagino. Oh, I, uh, I
1: think yeah.
2: you should go and watch it. Uh, you know, it's uh, probably one of the best. Probably the the only one that I like to. I I I don't. I don't mind. I went mean, I I feel that it's worth my money watching, or uh, in the cinema uh, after like many years, uh, the only Malaysian film uh, that is worth watching. Uh, so, uh, it's it tackles about, uh, about Alzheimer, like how you know, and dementia. I think, uh, so and it's very nicely put together. And then in the middle, you could expect a bit frustration, even from the audience perspective. So they 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 managed to actually bring out that. Uh, how and a uh, person who suffer from dementia or Alzheimer uh, actually have frustration with their memory being going around and round and not, you know. And however, Alzheimer uh, patient suffer, and I think they translate it quite well even from through visual narrative. And uh, I like the frustration in the middle of the film, and I think you should go and watch it. And uh, you know, and it's worth it's worth your time and money. Go.
1: The, how, how was the cinema full, empty, half full?
2: Full, and they actually in, because of the recent craze about the, the film, they increased the showing. Oh, nice. So there's a lot of showing right now. Uh, in cinema, you should go should go and support great good filmmakers. Yeah, don't support it just because they're Malaysian. If they're Malaysian, they make bad films. Don't support it. But if they're Malaysian, or even if they're Papua New Guinean, they make good films to so support it. They don't have to be Malaysian to
1: Yeah, to support, <laughs> I to I, I found this movie to be a surprise when it came out. I had I knew nothing about yeah. it, and uh, because I thought the, the, the mutt kiloization of uh, movies that, mm. that you know that would be where everything's going, so it's really mm. exciting yeah. to see that it's it's not necessarily going in that direction.
0: So I I've, I've been wanting to watch it, but every time I sort of I uh, and, and I will watch it it's just every time I Google it I am met with um very vague description descriptions of what it is um cam mm. you said you went in without knowing anything is that better
2: mm. yeah yeah I think don't expect anything and then but but you would you know just 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 let your allow yourself to be uh, to be uh, surprised with the emotional roller coaster that the filmmaker is trying to to get you uh, on
1: excellent excellent yeah. okay we have to go Julian all right um i want to go i want to go so uh, (laughs) um so anyway that brings us to the end of this big show and uh only remains to be to thank julian yap thank you very much
0: thank you so much for having me
1: uh and you know good luck in the workplace don't let them steal your lunch money Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and uh Thank you, Ahmad Yazid. Hey, Yazid, you got any uh, projects that you need to tell us about that are coming out on air anytime soon? Uh,
2: no, not, not so soon. Yeah. There was a, just uh, a travelogue that would come up, but only later. But I'll share it in the next session.
1: Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, and myself, Karen Ruslan, And uh, thank you very much. And please join us next week for an exciting episode of Bitter Culture here on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9,
0: the business station.